Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning, let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. You can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes. So definitely become a patron for $5 a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. And without further ado, here is the episode. Take care. Hey, Champagne Sharks. We are talking today about Ted Lasso. And this was, we were doing an Emmys um, series about things nominated for Emmys and everything. But this show was airing. The season was ending after the date of the Emmys. So I decided, you know what? Uh, it's hard to judge this season without knowing where they're going because it, it's such a clear season-long arc. So we decided to wait until the finale and then record. So this is actually airing after the Emmys. But I think it was worth waiting for. And my guest today, I'll let him introduce himself and where you can find him. He's been a guest on the show before for the Watchmen episode. Uh, yeah, my, my name is Mac. I run the YouTube channel Macabre Storytelling or Macabre Storytelling. We really haven't decided on how to pronounce that word. Uh, <laughs> uh, my YouTube channel, I usually talk about media analysis and a bunch of other stuff, social issues, etc. Uh, so yeah, I can be found there. And yeah, man, thanks for having me on again. I was really enjoyed the Watchmen episode. It's kind of kind of funny looking back, considering you know it was such a huge thing and it won a bunch of Emmys, and I haven't heard anyone even mention it in the last like what eighteen months now, something like that, even two years maybe. Yeah, it hasn't been mentioned uh, too much, and I feel like it's uh, it was big with a very vocal minority, you know. But I think for the average person who watched it, it was kind of out of sight, out of mind. Well, not I think not really much actually happened in terms of any narrative arcs. If anybody really wants to see a good takedown of it, I mean, a really well thought out one, uh, the one on your YouTube channel about it was um, very good. I mean, in fact, it was a whole reason we invited you on because I really think it was one of the most thoughtful. The last time I heard anyone talk about it was when I got into an argument online with some uh, person who writes for like Nerdist or one of those. One of those places you think would actually understand comic book source material where they, you know, gave, I think I showed you the thread where this guy gave credit to. Yeah, he said something really dumb. Hang on, let me see. Yeah, let me see if I can look it up. Because I remember it was like, what did he say? It was something about Ozzy. Yeah, and how basically that uh, Lindelof figured out that Ozzy's plan wouldn't work. And in that he he basically would give an answer to more like, hey, more, I think Ozzy Mendez's plan would work. Actually, uh, it wouldn't. And that was not what more was saying at all. Like he was not saying Ozzy Mendez's plan was foolproof and great. Like it's explicitly in the text that. Yeah, it ends with it ends with the implication that it's going to be discovered. It's like, dude, like, did you read like the last like two pages? Like that's the entire point of the novel, that it was only a Band-Aid solution and it probably the piece isn't going to last. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I, and I that's uh and i sent him a page that was dr manhattan's last words to him where it's basically like you know nothing ever ends like you know you know you're being very naive and silly and then he's like i read the book you know i don't need you to tell me you know and then um it became this big war about all these people trying to argue that lindelof was um was understanding 
the book better than more than everything. But I kind of realized all those people are kind of like either blue checks or people who kind of want to be blue checks. And I think they just do that because they think they might get them a job or something. That's the only thing I could think of because I can't understand. Um, but basically, that was the only interaction I've seen about the HBO Watchmen. And it was a small group of um weirdos who work for access media basically yeah and, and then we talked about sort of like how we had both at one point were interested in maybe like you know television writing or you know stuff like that and the more and more i learn about the industry and the net like the networking aspect of it like how people actually get staffed on like writers rooms or like get like commissions and stuff like that um the more i hear about it it just sounds like hell like it just sounds like you're basically and you know i there is a part of me too because there are a lot of people who i think are very you know there's the whole like um you know, very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Very sort of like vocal, like, you know, forced majority crowd who sort of like, they see any, like there's like a smaller group who like see like any sort of like diversity or like reference to social issues on media as like, oh, they're shoving it down our throats. Like there is a, a great deal of that, I would say. But um, there are certain people who just sort of like see that no matter what. Um, yeah. But then on the other extreme, then there are like, there are some shows where they're just so blatantly agenda driven that it's just almost like and, and i felt sort of like watchman was one of those shows where it's just i i like it just felt like you guys really wanted to talk about these themes and you were like hey let's just use watchmen but like you didn't really care for fit didn't really yeah you didn't really respect the source material outside of just like throwing in a bunch of references like really on the nose references and sort of like negating the entire point and that and that guy you spoke to is a perfect example of it like it's like oh look the the show uh like owned this the book because it showed that it wouldn't work and it's like again did you like even understand the ending of the novel like this is it's amazing how you can write about this stuff and or, or even have sort of like the confidence to write about it or comment on it when it seems like you have such a little understanding of oh it. yeah and like that's his job when i check his profile like he writes about comics for a living i'm like how do you not understand like the basics of watchmen and and you're writing about comics for a living but i mean i think that's the nature of things today and yeah i, I mean i think there's a lot of people who want uh their entertainment to be a think piece and i personally don't get it like i would i don't even want to read think pieces much less you know entertainment like source from think pieces but that brings me to things like um squid game which you know i thought was great because it didn't feel like a think piece um i didn't feel like i was reading a bunch of um bumper stickers and 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 t-shirts you would see at like a, a hillary rally or something it didn't feel like that and again ted lasso the show that we're here to discuss today like i mean the show can be accused of several things and i can see i can see it like someone might say it's modeling sometimes or saccharin or you know whatever i mean i didn't think so but i could see sometimes where even for me it was bordering close but at least it didn't feel like a think piece at least it didn't feel like somebody had a button list of pseudo, I mean, a bullet list of pseudo academic or pseudo therapeutic social issue discussions that they were trying to shove in everywhere. I mean, it talks about things like trauma, self-loathing and imposter syndrome and anxiety and therapy. Like it has that stuff, but it never really feels to me, at least didactic or heavy handed or to the point that I felt like I was watching robots or just something written by some kind of think piece algorithm and i would say those are my opening thoughts on it and i was wondering we've done pretty much no discussing on, on the show before this so i actually have no idea where you ended up falling after watching two whole seasons but i'm curious to hear
year. I know the exact same way. Um, just it's funny because uh, we, me and my girlfriend, just finished up Squid Game, and I think that, and also Ted Lasso, probably more so Ted Lasso. There, it's a great example of how a show can be. It can be political. You know, people always say like, "Oh, I don't like my media, like politics, my media." Well, all media is political. I I agree with that. However, when people sort of dismiss an argument like that, it's basically what we're trying to say. If it's more about how the political content or the political views are infused in the show like squid game it is pretty on the nose about like its contentions in regard to you know capitalism the current state of you know poverty and whatnot but it doesn't it kind of like has that constantly in the background and it focuses more on the individual characters and that's sort of why it's still political but it's not just like kind of like how you said the characters feel like characters they don't feel like the writers are like lecturing us through um the screen and ted lasso it's funny because looking back on it and i remember i didn't really think much of it when i first started it like it was fun enjoyable i didn't really see you know what how is this going to sustain itself um but then through the first season especially the second season you could i mean you could make an argument in terms of its political stances it's very it really discusses it 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 really is a great breakdown of sort of like modern masculinity and what is considered masculinity um in a very traditionally masculine driven environment you know like a, a professional sports team um but it never does so in a way like you said it never does so in a way that's shoving it down your throat it feels very they're just expressing these ideas through the characters ted never comes out and says it never feels like the writer i'm listening to the writer through the voice of ted or any of the other characters they just yes the 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 theme and the political stances are there they're kind of like in the background they're kind of coding the story but they never they never suffocate it and that's sort of what we mean if like if we see another show like Watchmen, i think is a great example of a show where the the political aspects of it just totally encapsulate everything else like the characters the characters become basically just walking chess pieces to set up the making these political points even if they don't really land like properly or even if it doesn't make any sense at all but yeah ted i mean it was especially the season two with um my biggest fear and i'm I'm sure you'll probably agree is originally i didn't really um see what they were going to do with ted's character i was like oh he's like super positive that's great but how um sustaining is that for an entire show yeah and the fact that yeah the fact that they really delved into his character his (laughs) vulnerabilities moments where he's weak and actually slips up um i was really glad to see that i think they did a fantastic job i mean i wasn't that worried about his character being like super positive because there is um i forget the name of the book but there's a book that talks about writing it talks about different arcs i think it's something called like seven different types of story arcs and like because of the whole hero's journey um dominance in modern discourse that people always think somebody has to start at a low place and read something but there's something called a flat character arc and that's where the character is pretty much the same but what they do is they change everybody uh, around them so mm-hmm. um, to use like manga anime examples because I feel like those seem to have a lot more of those things but something like um, Goku and Dragon Ball will basically be he you know doesn't have to refuse a call to adventure he doesn't have to be like a regular Joe or whatever like for most of this of the series he's pretty much actualized you know like uh, there's only very little of the series that has him kind of do a, a, a positive arc but most of the time he's actualized and what happens to him is is things come his way that kind of maybe test his faith in himself or his faith in his um fighting or his faith in his mission and like his arc is about him uh keeping his integrity in the face of challenge and what happens with the flat character arc is they themselves don't change but by being loyal to their values 
the core values or integrity, they make everyone else change. So what happens is if you look at Goku along the way, everybody he fights ends up usually becoming a good guy or something uh, because his values end up um, changing, changing them. Like a, another example is the uh, Captain America movie. Like when you first see Captain America, he from the time you meet him, he's already a good guy. Like he's getting into fights with bullies to protect other people. And he's like, I can do this all day. And he's like really scrawny. He's getting beat up. But even before he had the muscles, he always had like the character and it was just about um how he inspires people so i it didn't bother me that he might just be one note positive if that was going to be their plan like you know maybe have him turn jamie tart around have him um teach nate you know how to find himself or you know help the players on their journeys but they did end up actually giving him uh kind of more of a actual real arc and conflict which i didn't mind either you know i'm just kind of saying all this to say that i would have been fine either way that they they took him as long as they um did it well whether it was a positive arc which i think it ended up being or whether they went the flat character arc which i think the first season was more of like a flat character arc where he stays the same and is positive and makes everyone else grow like 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 rebecca you know gets over her bitterness from you know knowing him jamie matures a little bit and so forth and so forth yeah it's it's funny because you mentioned that um when we were because we kind of talked a bit on twitter about like it's almost it was almost disarming watching um the first season because i kept expecting something to go wrong i kept expecting like something to be like subverted like it's like everything like ted too much of a like you said like sort of like a, a consistently positive character um and it, it was enjoyable to watch of course jason sudeikis is hilarious and so wholesome but um i think i had like this itch in the back of my head like something has to be wrong and i think it had to do not because it was wasn't good in the show it was um because i am so used to especially in like you know modern television i think we've been conditioned to be more um, drawn to, you know, like the anti-hero type characters, um, sort of like rough around the edges characters, uh, characters who, like you said, they're in very bad places and they need to sort of, um, their arc is about them sort of like getting into a better place. And that's, and I understand that because like, you know, in the early 2000s, that's sort of, that was sort of the evolution of the sitcom. Like, you know, back in like, you know, before then, like the 80s and 90s, we had all the sitcoms where everyone was happy and positive and characters really didn't have arcs. They were just consistent. And so, going into the 2000s with like Sopranos, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, you had all these like very complex um, very dynamic characters um, in terms of their characterization, their arcs. Um, the only issue with that was that at some point it kind of, that sort of um, show or that sort of character kind of oversaturated the market where we got another, like like they were like how many like Breaking Bad clones are there where it's like, oh, you take like a meat character and, and then they slowly become more, you know, uh, more confident or more, you know, aggressive or evil. And that's sort of, and that's fine. Like they're interesting, but it kind of, again, it kind of oversaturated the market. And then so when Ted Lasso came out, I think I was almost disarmed to see a show that was so wholesome. I, I kind of almost like my brain didn't know like how to handle it i was like wait something's gotta be wrong yeah um, i totally agree yeah and then but then eventually like you and i said um eventually it, it won us over it, it's like it's one of the shows where like once you kind of give into it once you kind of just accept it for what it is as opposed to like what you think it should be based on other television that's i think really when the show wins you over yeah i i agree and being that this is such a you know positive love fest so far i want to say up front that they're actually i did have some problems 
with it. And I'm not 100% sure if the end of the season solved those problems. And I feel like it's kind of like Empire Strikes Back or something where it's like, in one sense, you can feel it's better, but because it kind of ends on a cliffhanger, you're not really sure um, how you feel about the choices because they haven't completed a lot of arcs yet. So season two is such a transitory season. You know, in such a setup season, whereas season one, I felt was more like a complete arc. Like it ended with a semi cliffhanger, a semi dilemma, which is, okay, we got um, relegated. We have to work our way back up into the league. You know, like that was the only probably real um, conflict was or when everything didn't work out was when they lost and didn't get to make it into, um, didn't get to keep their place in the league. But outside of that, that was the kind of thing where it wasn't like you needed it to complete anybody's kind of initial arc. Like, you know, Nate became a assistant coach and, and so forth. And people kind of grew and Ted Lasso got comfortable and Rebecca got rid of her um, bitterness and everything. And it was kind of easy to judge as a complete arc, whereas season two and your thoughts may differ, but season two, there were things that I was questioning. I wasn't totally, we can unpack it as we record, but I'll just throw one out there now, just for an example. I wasn't sure that Nate's heel turn was fully earned. Like when the time came for the confrontation, I was a little, a little disappointed, not in the acting. I think the, I think the Nate actor sold it very well. I think Ted, Jason Sudeikis acted very well in the scene, but the extent of his bitterness and anger, I just felt like he would justify it better, you know? And it was like, you know, I felt there needed to be a little bit of a better explanation. They did their best to kind of seed it and foreshadow it throughout, you know, the season, like, you know, his scenes with his dad, with his dad never approving of him and, you know, little things with Colin and the, the new guy who took his place, you know, and how some players used to treat him in the previous seasons and everything. But yeah, there was something... And but I don't know how hard to judge that because that might be getting more unpacked or made explicit in, um, you know, season three. But like what I thought was going to happen was I thought when his strategy did end up winning, all the players started cheering him on. He would kind of realize that um, he was being a dick or something. And they didn't take that easy way out. They had him stay upset even after winning and everything. But that just confused me more. I'm like, okay, why is he still upset? There's a lot of possible reasons, but they didn't give me any that are fully explaining this to me. And I don't know if that's on purpose because they're still going to unpack that more or if they really thought that what they gave us was a good enough answer for everything. You know, it's it's funny because you say that um, to go back to your point about like you know season one being more of sort of like a um, like it having sort of like a more like um, satisfactory resolution, where season two is more of a is more set up to more like generating conflict for future seasons. I definitely felt that I I, I personally enjoy that with shows. Um, I really dislike, and, and I understand there are certain aspects of shows where it's like you know, oh, we don't know if we're gonna be renewed next season, so we kind of have to we can't have too many loose threads hanging. But Ted Lasso, I think it got renewed for a. Season season three, maybe even four. So I think that gave the writers more confidence to say, okay, we'll, we'll have time to sort of like uh, develop this. And I like, I, I really appreciate that. I think that's sort of one of the biggest issues with a lot of television is that they're always sort of like for not like, you know, outside of like um, big, big shows like Game of Thrones or something like that.
like that, um, or Better Call Saul or something, um, with like a very large following. When it comes to smaller shows, there's sort of like a lack of con- not really confidence, but a lack of security in terms of hey, um, can we? What if we're trying to set up a three season arc and we get to cancel after two seasons? And I, I understand that that can be sort of you know it can c- kind of keep the writers on uh, the balance beam. I guess you could say they're always sort of like you know they're always wary of that. So I appreciate the show doing that, kind of leaving things more open well, for season well, two well, and for season three. I'll say this. I don't mind the things that I'm talking about, uh, loose ends for season two, if they are deliberate loose ends, as in we know we didn't answer these particular questions because that's to come. And, and we were setting, we're setting that up, you know, um, my worry, I guess, is more if the loose end is not deliberate, as in the explanation that we got, which is that um, Ted abandoned him and set him up to fail or whatever. If that's supposed to be the satisfactory explanation for the heel turn, there's, there's not going to be more kind of um, psychodynamic exploration of what exactly is he talking about? Where is that coming from? Then it'll disappoint me. But it's too early to say, you know, because well, we're going to because that happens to me recently with the show. I may destroy you with the first four episodes. There were so many things that kind of felt like plot holes to me. And I was writing them down and telling someone like, this is so stupid. Like Nobody would do this. Why would somebody do that? And, but then by the last three episodes, they actually had people reflect on everything you did in the first four. And you realize that the writer actually knew that they were presenting like, you know, these unlikable or things that didn't make sense and was planning to, you know. So I'm trying to keep that same faith that I didn't have, you know, with, with I May Destroy You with this, where just because they see to have um, addressed something, but they did it not fully satisfactory. It doesn't mean that they don't know that that wasn't a fully satisfactory answer yet and that they're trying to tease out more growth by eventually answering the question. Yeah, I'm definitely someone kind of going back to the whole thing. It's it's very similar to like um, if I'm watching a show, it's hard for me to um, judge it like season to season or even episode to episode. Sometimes I kind of have to wait until the whole thing is out to kind of give everything context. And that's kind of hard because like you have to wait like, you know, like maybe five years until this whole series is out and you can judge it. But exactly. Yeah. As shows now more and more becoming more of like not just individual episodes, not even individual seasons, but sort of like parts to a whole. And there's like a very uh, sort of like a very deliberate plan or structure to it. Um, we kind of have to do that more. Um, to your to your point, though, it was interesting because that actually it, it was funny. Me and my girlfriend were going to she headed out for the weekend. So we were going to wake up early Saturday to watch the episode so we could chat because she didn't want me to watch it without her. Um, and so we ended up like watching it at midnight on Friday um, when we saw that scene the scene where um ted finally confronts nate which was a fan i thought that was a fantastic scene um i kind of thought the same way you did um where i didn't really understand where nate was coming from when he's like you abandoned me it's funny because you know at first i was like wait a minute did i miss something is like the the writers not set this up properly and at first i thought i was kind of like with you where i was like huh maybe maybe the writers didn't do this properly however there was one line in that scene that i think really sort of gives context to this and sort of like gives the answer and that was this it was the line where he says and now we're going to go out there and do the do my play and they're going to mess it up and then it's going to all fall on me 
that one line I think really gives perspective to his entire arc because yes. if you if you watch the entire season, everyone's very supportive to Nate. Aside from like his father, of course, is the one person who he can't win the approval of. But for the most part, everyone else is extremely nice to him. They're supportive. They respect him. So you're like, where is all this animosity coming from? And the sad the sad part is, and it makes sense that it's all coming from within him. It's he is he is his own worst enemy. He is the one setting up setting himself up to fail he's and i've actually it's funny because i've met people like this where they almost they're the they're so afraid of failing or they're so afraid of especially people like someone like nate who was like very much an outcast and then he won approval he's so afraid of losing that approval that he almost he almost has to like prepare himself he almost has to catastrophize his life he has to yep i'm um roy's here uh now i'm gonna be uh i guess there's an episode where roy returns as a coach and then like there's that shot of ned like very nervous he's like oh no now now roy's here he's gonna threaten this he's gonna take the spotlight he's waiting for the other shoe to drop and And i I would also defense mechanism sort of yeah totally i I would also add not he not only is waiting for the shoe to drop but i think the anxious anticipation of the inevitable failure also makes him almost want to hasten it like let me get it over with and i think maybe that's why i think he wants both i think he wants win and finally be a winner but he also believes that he can't win so he might as well hasten the downfall and get it over with instead of not having it happen under his control and i think that's why it is very well shown in that he's very upset and angry when they're not winning and it's not working. And he's like, you know, of course they, they're going to fuck it up. They suck and everything. And he's like kind of displacing his own self-loathing onto the, toward the team. But then when he, when the, it does work and he's a hero, he's almost even madder because it's like, it is one more delay of the inevitable or it's like, Precisely. if you think you, that you're going to fall off the ladder at some point, then the higher you get on the ladder just means that the fall is going to be that much more, um, um, painful. So if somebody told you at some point during this ladder climb is guaranteed you're going to fall off of it. It's almost against your interest to get too high in the ladder because it's like, if there's going to be a guaranteed fall, this psychic predicted this guaranteed fall, do I really want to go to the top? Because what if the fall happens um, from the top? You know what I mean? And everyone's going to be looking because I was so high and the pain's going to be worse. So yeah, I mean, I think on, on reflection, there is a lot of stuff there that um, does make sense. And to their credit, I guess they didn't feel the need to make all subtext into text, which I think is another thing that you were talking about things that TV trains you to expect and anticipate. And I guess, especially nowadays with the way television has become so didactic, um, you know, that uh, you're kind of almost trained to expect the creators to make things into text or you think that they didn't see it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that uh, metaphor for the latter is perfectly put because, you know, I've... You know, I did a video a while back on like, you know, uh, dating and red pill and pickup artists and all that. And uh, one of the points I get a lot from, you know, young men who were sort of scared about dating is that they're so afraid of the hypothetical heartbreak that they won't even try and get a relationship. So like the way you put it, like the more invested, the higher on the ladder I get, that just means the harder the fall is going to hurt. And that's sort of, I think, what's happening to Nate, where he's like, things are good, but he's so paranoid about it being ripped away that the that the better 
better it gets, it, it conversely, ironically, it makes him more anxious. And like, like you said, like that scene where he, his plan works and he's going to get all the credit, but then he, it, he hates it. And it's because like you, as you put, he knows as it's going to get better. We're going to, Hey, we're now we're going to the premier league. Eventually this is all going to fall and collapse. And when it does, it's going to hurt 10 times more than it would have. And that is such a, it's such a heartbreaking you know, mindset that a lot of people who are damaged have or who are who have been victimized in their life, they always are sort of and it's a defense mechanism and they're they're preparing for the worst. But that unfortunately, um, that unfortunately sets them up to not being able to live their lives. And that it actually ties back perfectly to season one with um, Ted, uh, you know, the fi- the finale is called the hope that it's the hope that kills you. It's the it's the optimism. It could, you know, if you don't if you don't have any expectations, if you don't strive for anything in your life, well, if you don't get it then you're not disappointed it's wanting something and not getting it that leads to disappointment and heartbreak and it seems like with nate it's that he's so afraid of that heartbreak that he doesn't want to he he doesn't want to put himself out there he doesn't want to put himself in a position where he can have like suffer that heartbreak that that the good things being ripped away from him um and it's it's funny because yeah and like to your point like about it like you know the show being it's funny because like in the first couple first season a lot of the lessons felt a little bit on the nose whereas with nate's arc it was so subtle it was like when it first happened i was like when he was like yelling at ted i was like where's all this coming from but then as i like thought back on everything that he had gone through it all started clicking like it all started falling into place with his father you know with roy coming back just little things here and there like his arc in season one how he was treated by the team it all very it all just sort of clicked into place and i think that's also why uh something i heard from a lot of people is why didn't they were a little bit surprised why ted didn't like say anything in that scene why he just let nate sort of like you know go at him and i think because ted realized like how you put it it's this is misdirected anger he knows that nate isn't mad at him he's mad at himself and he's not i think ted was almost like sad in that scene not for himself he wasn't angry he was more sad for nate like what what happened like why are you doing this to yourself and oh i I was gonna say but i think what's ironic about that is i think that kind of pisses nate off even more because i think nate even kind of feels that like that he's feeling um sorry for him but then i think that almost makes him like for example i think a good scene was roy when he tells Roy that he kissed Keely and his reaction is very different. He's like, you know, I forgive you, Nate. And he's like, but you were so mad at Jamie for so long. And it's kind of like, you know, that reminded me of to bring it back to the whole dating thing because you you brought up a a video you brought. I think a similar thing is like the whole nice guy thing. Like, it's like, it's almost like being called nice guy. It's like, okay, you don't even see me as a threat. You don't see me as um, someone to even take seriously enough to um, get mad at. Like, so, you know, he kind of wanted to be punished. I think part of it was for that self-loathing reasons, you know, but he also wants to feel like he is enough of a threat or something to be mad at. So I think even if he was able to register on Ted's inability to be angry at him or whatever, because he felt bad for him, I think instead of appreciating the empathy, it would almost um, make him angrier. And something that's very important about uh, neurosis and, you know, mental health issues or struggles or, you know, neurotic, neurotic struggles is that I remember somebody put it to me that I thought was very helpful to understand. He's like, um, 
the problem with any of those types of neurotic internal um, struggles is that you're being pulled in uh, two directions. You know, it's like, you know, for the guy who, say, for example, is a sex addicted um, compulsive cheater, his problem isn't that he always wants to cheat on his uh, partner or wife. His problem is that there's a part of him that desperately wants to be monogamous and there's a part of him that desperately wants to, you know, sleep around and stuff. And he just wanted one or the other. He wouldn't have a problem if he just wanted to be monogamous and didn't feel the urge to, you know, go around and do all this um, stuff on the side. He would just be a happily married person if he just wanted to be like a super hoe and just, you know, sleep with everything out there. He could just go out there and do that and never get married. But uh, the problem is when you have two desires at once and you can find that almost any neurotic fixation or um, personality issue or, you know, whatever you want to call it, is that there is this kind of tug of war in you where you want cognitive distance, uh, you know, and that's the thing with Nate is that Nate, if Nate just wanted no responsibilities and to not have the pressures of, of winning and not, you know, be a winner, it would actually be easier for him. He could just sit in the uh, locker room and keep that first job he had, but he's someone who actually generally wants to be a winner. He wants to be important. He wants to be, he wants to break the streak of, you know, being a loser or whatever, but he's also afraid of winning. And I think they really captured that well in that he had a bad reaction no matter what happened. When he was losing, he had a bad reaction. Uh, When he was winning, he had a bad reaction. But yeah, I mean, as much as we talk about how much he is um, afraid of the fall, the higher he gets off the ladder. I think it's also important to emphasize he's afraid of not going up the ladder as well, you know, and that's like the problem. He's being, if he wasn't compelled to go up the ladder, it wouldn't be a problem. He could just be like, well, since I'm afraid of the fall, I'm just not going to climb it. But he, he wants to climb it. He wants to win. And he, but he's deathly afraid to do so at the same time. And I think, you know, that's very important to keep in mind in his, in his arc. And it, and it just causes more turmoil for him because he's, he does truly like that scene especially where he's like chewing out Ted. What's so great about that, and Nick Mohammed does an excellent job, I think, is that, and I think this is sort of why, again, people are like, why didn't Ted say anything? During that performance, you can tell like when Nate is saying these things, he's like being torn up inside. He does, I don't think he likes the person he is in that moment. Um, when he's lashing out at Ted, it almost feels like it's like, it, again, it's all, it's self-loathing. It's, it's, he doesn't like saying it because he does care for Ted. He doesn't actually hate Ted. Of course he doesn't. Um, but he's so filled with this paranoia, this anger, this resentment, this, um, you know, residual trauma from like, you know, his days as like sort of like the loser with the field house attendant and his father. And he's so afraid of that abandonment that he's so fragile that, like you said, he he's he's horrified of putting himself in a position where he can be vulnerable. However, and you make another good point, that is also he, he constantly is also striving for approval, especially from his father. That it was such a great moment too. that little scene uh, where he tells Roy about um, kissing Keeley. It seems so small in retrospect. You're kind of like, wait, what was the point of that? But it really drives home this idea that he is, and, and kind of connecting back to the themes of like, you know, like marred masculinity. Nate seems to, he seems to equate res- respect with fear. Or He kind of, he feels as though because Roy does not see him as a threat, that means that he's weak or that he's not, he, Roy doesn't respect him in a way, which is such a, you know, that's such a traditional like you know sort of like toxic mass like masculine trait of like oh you have to be 
a, a threat to people for them to respect you. The, the people have to fear to respect you. That's I think that's actually something that the show has been breaking down ever since its first episode, where respect isn't about like being afraid of someone. It's through mutual understanding. It's through showing empathy, understanding people, just listening to them and understanding their viewpoint. But Nate is still stuck in this toxic view of instead of seeing it as Roy's like, wow, this is a great friend of mine who is forgiving me for this because he understands that it was a mistake and it wasn't a big deal. He views it in this through this warped perspective of no, 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 this means that he doesn't view me as a threat because he doesn't respect me as a man. And th- that is such a toxic and it kind of going back to, you know, how he's like a self-sabotager and Nate, that's all in his head. No one's actually saying that to him. No one even thinks it. Not Jamie, not Roy, not Ted, not Higgins, not Beard. It's all Nate. It's all Nate. Um, back to your point in regard to, you know, people who are self-sabotagers. I think sometimes people don't, they sort of like uh, misdiagnose the issue there. Like people, like let's say you're in a great relationship and you start like neglecting your partner or even like cheating on your partner. In, in many cases, that might just be because the person's a piece of crap, like because they're a bad person. However, at least in my experience, when people do that, when they push away their partner, it's more because they don't feel as if they're worthy of that, of the love. They feel like this person is treating me well, but I don't deserve it. So I need to push them away. It's it's a really weird uh, psychological, I, I, I really think it's sort of like a defense mechanism. They don't feel as though they're worthy of this and they either don't want to hurt the person or get themselves hurt. So they just try and squash it before they get too attached. And that I really think, and again, it, I almost feel like it wouldn't have worked in Ted Lasso in regards to Nate, in regard to Nate's character, had the entire season, especially not focused on therapy and mental health. I think with having that in the sort of like the milieu sort of like you know in the background that theme being present it makes you sort of see nate's arc because without it i think you would look at nate's art nate's arc and be like wait what's going on where is this coming from but then adding in everything that ted has talked about roy jamie with his father especially and and you have all like this sort of like repression self-sabotaging um self-hatred self-loathing it really that all sort of coats nate's arc and really allows you to understand what's going on but i do agree I think we're going to get a lot more. We're going to get a lot more deep in his psyche come season three. I don't think he's just going to be like a stock villain. I think we're going to see a real, a deeper dive into like what's really going on with him in season three. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. It's going to be, um, it's going to be pretty interesting. I mean, it was pretty well foreshadowed when the husband, I always forget a Rupert. Yeah. yeah Re- Rebecca's ex-husband Rupert, when she, when she, he's talking to her during the funeral, when he's talking to Nate during the funeral, it's pretty clear he's probably asking him to um you know uh come over to to his side and everything but yeah it's uh it's um pretty interesting in that when you look back there's a lot of emasculating moments that happen you know with the um table in the restaurant with the guy jan making a, a comment about that isn't kind of emasculating to have a man another man buy your clothes but because we're kind of trained through sitcoms there's a character that's like the the ex character, and that's just how you talk to them. And their thing is uh, just being emasculated all the time because that's just their character, or like the dumb, the dumb character, like you know, Coach or Woody on Cheers. And people will straight up make jokes that they're dumb to their face in the show, and they just like laugh it off or they don't react because that's what it's supposed to be, like the dumb character. But you know, in real life, if you're the dumb guy, like um, uh, Coach or Woody or Joy from Blossom or you know whoever you want to use as the example people constantly calling you dumb would probably 
already start getting on your nerves. Like, you know, you would just accept that role as um, it kind of reminds me. Someone made this funny skit on YouTube about it's uh, called RDC World. That's a, that's the name of the, of the channel uh, for people who want to look for it. But it's like when you find out you're a side character and there's like these two um, characters and they're like characters out of an, an anime, like like the, the actors are playing characters in a made up anime and one character thinks he's the main character and then they approach the villain and then um the villain is like so finally you're here uh you know uh joseph and then the guy's like why are you talking to him i'm i'm here like you know and then uh the guy just keeps talking uh past him and he goes oh no don't tell me i'm a side character no i can't be a side character <laughs> and he's like no but i beat up the last guy he goes oh no but the side character always beats the second to last guy you know <laughs> the, the uh the main character goes no no i'm not a side character but he just keeps like trying to interject in the conversation but because increasingly clear that he's a uh side character and then at one point both the villain and the other guy who's his teammate both disappear and he's like holy crap where did they go oh they're just moving too fast for my eyes to see and then once that happens he goes shit i am a side character that's always you know in the anime like the final sign like you know the the main character and the main villain are both moving so fast that none of the other characters can see them move so he finally realizes once and for all like and then he's like damn i should have known when you know when the name of the anime was called richard you know like the other guy's name but i think it's kind of like realistic like most people don't Everybody thinks they're the main character or everybody wants to be the main character. Nobody actually expects to be the comic relief or the dumb guy or the supporting guy or, or the, the the side character, you know, but... um. And I think that's what's kind of realistic about Nate. Like all these signs were there, but we just kind of thought about Nate, the way he complains that the characters in the, in the show think about, they like, oh, that's just Nate. You know, he's okay with it. Or it doesn't matter that someone says something kind of, um, and when you look back on it, there's like a bunch of little things. Like for example, uh, Ted in an earlier episode says something like, oh, that's why we, we should get one of the big dogs to talk to, talk to him about somebody who's upset. And then Nate's like, I can do it. And then like Ted like laughs in his face, you know? Yeah. And and at the first time, I just took, oh, that's a funny piece of uh, comic relief, you know, like something that would happen to like uh, Dwight in the office or something, you know, but realistically, people don't want to be Dwight. And when they feel like they're Dwight, they um, push back against it. So, yeah, I think something you touched on earlier is that a lot of the problems uh, that we might feel occasionally with this show come from our own conditioned expectations from watching other shows more than anything the show actually uh, did wrong. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I didn't even, um, I, I totally forgot about it until you mentioned it. Um, that whole little thing about um, Ted buying Nate a suit, like it was hard for me to almost like understand like, oh, isn't that infantilizing? Isn't that like emasculating? I'm like, and here I'm sitting here like, why? Like, I don't, I can see like, I mean, that's just like me personally, but I can see how in in Nate's view with his sort of like his outlook, his sort of like, you know, that's that's sort of still toxic framing of anything that someone might do that's nice for me or that's kind is sort of, it's like, it's emasculating. It shows a lack of respect. And that's, that's a horribly toxic um, outlook. Like it's because, it, because every single time something good happens in your life, you, your brain will sort of like default to this is bad. Something is wrong here. There's, there is a, um, there is a, uh, a nefarious intent to it. Um, and, and then in the final scene, it was like, yeah, it's like, you're gonna, you get all the credit and then they're going to fail. And then I'm going to be the one who takes the blame, which like, it doesn't really make any sense, but basically what he's doing is like, he's been conditioned to 
always think of the worst, the worst possible outcome. And he, he kind of like, again, like you said, he has to prepare himself for that. He has to squash it before it happens because we might as well get it over with so it doesn't hurt as much as it would down the line. He can't just he can't just accept other people's friendship, kindness, forgiveness. It always it's always framed in this weird like, oh, I'm being emasculated. Oh, I'm not respected. And that is a horribly toxic. And it again, it makes perfect sense given his past, how they, he used to be treated in the locker room, his father. Yeah, man, it, the more I think about it, like it's actually incredibly well done. It's far, again, it's way more way more subtle than I would expect from even even most shows, I would say. Oh, yeah. Know, yeah. A lot, I, I, a lot, I think even the not reason, even sitcoms, but. Oh, yeah. I think the reason why we miss a lot of it or it goes over our head and so forth is because we're trained to kind of think in tropes. So, you know, when all these emasculating things happen, we just think, oh, that's just what's supposed to happen to him. That's his character, you know? And we never think that the that that character, if it was, we never think of that character as a real person, where if it's a real person, you would get kind of sick of your friends always making snarky asides after you talk about what a dumb thing you just said, you know? Um, you know, like you, so I think that's kind of what happened. There's a lot of things happening, but the reason why they kind of, got forgotten is because we're just used to that type of that type of character you know he's uh he's like an urkel people always like you know making fun of steve urkel to his face or wishing he would leave and he just is oblivious and just powers through like nothing happened you know it's, it's for the benefit of the audience but there's a person on the other end of that you know those things in real life uh, add up and i put a link in the chat of something i found w while we were talking and it's interesting the actor nick muhammad he actually made a post where he did this list. Let's look at uh, an Apple Notes uh, list. He made this little list of all the microaggressions that have happened to uh, Nate that people might have might have missed, and it was uh, pretty. It's pretty um, pretty interesting, you know. Um, yeah, it so is. it, it kind of shows that he's that he's thinking about these things himself, and that you know the writers have been thinking about it and stuff in in the in the script. So I think it's short enough that. We can just read read the list real real quick. Well, there's there's one in there that it, just to highlight it, it's it's so perfectly um, kind of what we were talking about. Speaking of which, when Nate spits, because I remember him doing that in the show, like when he would spit, um, he's both physically and metaphorically spitting at himself, like when he spits himself in the mirror. Oh yeah, he did do that. Yeah, it's all a it's all a spiral of self sabotage and self hatred. And he does mention, you know, like there are little microaggressions. Um, you know, like when um he like Ted laughs at him or, you know, Roy forgives him. But because Nate is in this fragile state, that little like like for the most part, like, you know, like N Ted laughing at him about that. That wasn't like Ted obviously didn't mean that to be an insult. And like he apologized right after. And to most people, it would they would just brush it off. But to Nate, who is in that fragile state, that means that's crushing to him like that, like is. is is 10 times the blow as it would be to someone else. Um, and I'll actually um, take his side a little bit in that whether Ted or not meant it, it meant something that he did. Absolutely. It. You, you know, because he would not have done it with everybody. So whether he meant it to be malicious or not, it was even if, if, if malice requires like intent, then there was something else negative, but it wasn't imagined by Nate. You know, I mean, it might have resonated with him harder because he deep down believes that about himself. But mm -hmm. 
Tad would not have done that with everybody. So it does mean something that that he that he did that. So you know, I, I wouldn't let Ted totally off off the hook. But I think it just shows that even like the nicest people can be uh, carelessly or recklessly um, callous without without realizing it. You know, um, that and that's so and that goes back to like we were talking about of how they made Ted more more of a dynamic character. Yeah, um, my favorite is He's not perfect. Yeah, or even in season one, um, it was, I almost like, it kind of like disturbed me a bit. Um, the scene where Nate is, it's, it's kind of a cute scene where he um, he has the list, what he wants to say to the players, but he doesn't want to read it himself. So he's putting it under Ted's door, but he keeps sliding it back and forth because he's nervous. Um, and that's like a really funny, cute moment. But then Ted opens the door and like barks at him because it was right after his wife texted him to sign the divorce papers. Yeah, And that moment was like, it was scary coming from him. Like, because you didn't expect that. Um, that was, I think that was maybe been the first time we saw him lose his temper. And of course, the next day he apologized. But just seeing that side of him is like, and again, it, it makes it more, it somehow makes his positivity and his kindness more, it, it almost makes me respect him more. There was, there's an old Robin Williams quote. Um, it, you know, it makes the rounds, but it's um, the most damaged people are the nicest because they know how that feels and they don't want anyone else to feel that way. And then, of course, in season two, when we find out more about what's going on with Ted and, you know, in his past with his father and his family, um, it just makes so much more sense. He he is so kind and positive and, and respectful to people. But at the same time, that is brought about by the fact that he is so damaged and broken and, and flawed himself. And I, I was really surprised. Oh, the um, especially the scene where he um, meets with the therapist for the first time. And he's like, yeah, I think this is BS. Like he just... And it, again, it's almost like, who is this person? This isn't like the Ted we know. As we find out, it's like, oh no, it's just that he, this super positive Ted that we see is in many, in some ways, it is who he naturally is, but at the same time, it is sort of a coping mechanism. And there is even I, I, something I even loved about the show, given the, despite the fact that it is a very, you know, like wholesome, positive show. I think the show even discusses how like perpetual positivity can actually be unhealthy. Yeah. It, it's okay to, it, it's okay to lose your temper. It's okay to express your anger and your sadness. That's okay. It's healthy. Um, holding it in and trying to just, ah, it doesn't bother me. No, 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 no. That is not good. Yeah. And, and I think that's kind of a problem that it's another example of something that we as viewers get trained to expect because of how so many writers do it. Another example is this, I think it's more, of a recent trend, um, more than anything, but this idea of if someone is depicting something, they must be endorsing it, you know? And so because they spent the whole season depicting his kind of almost toxic positivity, we just assume that, you know, these creators are blind to the possible downsides of that. But if you kind of, but they make it more explicit, you know, in this uh, season through that storyline. But if you look back, you do get hints that they understood it even back then. Like one example being like when he blew up at Nate. And I think that blowing up at Nate came from, you know, when you make yourself too positive all the time, sometimes when you do break, you almost all that pent up rage, um, you know, kind of erupts. And sometimes it erupts at the wrong person. But, you know, there's like little hints of that. You know, they, they understood that this this uh, positive all the time thing has its has its limits, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, something that I thought was kind of interesting too, like I thought we were going to talk about so many different things, but we ended up talking mostly about Nate, but I think it's rightfully so because I think they kind of, it was almost like a trick play in and of itself, the show. It was almost, the show itself was almost like a trick uh, soccer play in that 
you thought the action was going one way and that it was going to be um, one type of move. And then there's a misdirection and it's actually a uh, trick play. And the play is about a different player who's going to you know score in a different way. I feel like that's what this thing is like, as in when you look back and look at all the clues and look at things like Nate's list, you kind of realize that this was always end game. This is always the main, the main, uh, you know, story was about, Ted and Nate. And even now it still feels weird. I'm still kind of in denial, even though the season two ending with the close up on his face is as much proof as you need that he's a main, he's a main, if not the main antagonist. And there's a part of me, and we use the word cognitive dissonance already, but I'll use it again. There's a cognitive dissonance to me still in totally accepting that, even though it's so clear at this point, which again, almost is a real life mirroring of Nate's dilemma. Even now, I still have trouble thinking, oh, that's just Nate. He's going to come around. Even this episode, I thought by the end of the episode, he was going to come around, you know? Um, so, so yeah, I think it's just kind of uh, very interesting how a lot of this stuff has been seeded that they've kind of made you think the show is about one thing and is very much about another in a way that but it's all, you know, I take it back. The more we talk about it, it is a lot. It is pretty, it is pretty earned. It, it, in real time, I think this conversation has uh, it, turned it me really around. Is amazing. It really is amazing how it's one of those things, right? Where it's like, you kind of go, huh? But then the more, and that's, that's personally for me, this is how I depend on what, what if I'm asking like, what's a good book? What's a good movie? What's a good show? We can talk about character arcs, et cetera, et cetera. But the biggest thing for me, is if the more, regardless of my initial feelings towards a piece, whether it's a show, a movie, a book, whatever, the more the more I sit with it, the more I think about it. If it gets worse, that usually means it, it's not a very good show. If the more I have to think about a piece of media, it, the, like the worse it gets as I think about it more, that's usually a sign that it's not well written. Even if I enjoyed it initially, if I the more I think about it, it gets worse as time goes on. That's not good. The true pieces of media that I've found that I'm drawn to the most are the ones where, again, I might like it, I might love it when I first watch it, but the more I think about it, the more I talk about it as we're doing now, the more it clicks into place and the more the threads come together and the more the deeper and more nuanced it gets as I think about it and talk about it. That to me is like what it, that's to me, that to me what is what differentiates like an excellent show from just like an okay show. And I, I really think... And like, and to your point exactly, like I, I didn't even realize it until reading this, but um, uh, that um, Nick Mohammed put up, I, I, I couldn't believe it when he said it. The only single scene that Nate and Ted have together in season two is the last one. And yeah, I didn't that, notice I'm that like, either. I was like, holy crap! Like, and especially considering they had a lot of uh, bonding in season one, and I'm like, oh wow, that's and like you said, it kind of sneaks up on you. You don't realize this is happening, kind of like Ted in a sense. He doesn't really realize what's happening with Nate until he gets that text from Trent. Like Ted didn't realize that uh, Nate was uh, mistreating the other uh, football attendant, the young kid. He wasn't really aware of that. He wasn't really aware what was going on with him and Keely and and him and Beard and and so when. It happens. I think Ted, as as much as it is misdirected, I do think in that final scene, Ted is sort of actually. You know what? Maybe I was neglecting you a bit. Like I didn't even realize you were hurting this badly. Yeah, like he's not yeah. saying it personally, but he's like, maybe I did. Maybe maybe I don't. I really didn't realize how much you were hurting. What was happening? And maybe that is a failure on my part. All right, y'all. So. That is the end of part one. Go to, again, patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link 
in the show notes to get part two. Be good.